out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, if only. Thank you, Jim. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next, I don't know, 60-odd minutes. As you know, we like to bring you the finest in indie pop and sometimes beyond. This is um, one of my interviews that I did with David Devonta and his spirit wife, who goes by the name of Mikey Jordson. So this is, uh, this is where we get down, deep down and uh, excitable, as we talk about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. So sit back, relax, turn up your stereos for quality chat. I hope it's quality chat. Anyway, Mr. Devont was very cool. I was so-so. Anyway, um, after several minutes of chatting and rapping and getting to know each other, we got down to that exciting subject. It was the beginning of his musical journey. And this was his response. Take it away, Mr. Devont. I was in a band called, uh, I still am in Glam Chops, who were a a sort of high concept glam rock band with Eddie from Art Brew and Paul who ran Guided Missile Records. Um, but I used to share the singing with Eddie and one of my my songs are a bit more ballady uh, because I like tunes and things. So the song I did, uh, I take centre stage, uh, was uh, Glue and Glitter. Nice. And that was essentially a song about uh, remembering being a little kid and liking Gary Glitter and making pictures. Of my, and it says on the wall of my parents' house is a picture that I something when I was five. They've still got it on their wall and it's Gary Glitter on top of the pops. And, uh, you know, there's like the platform shoes and a sort of misshapen the <laughs> drawing of an acoustic guitar that, think was meant to be electric yeah excellent so but then but uh but as you progress yeah. through the the, the 70s so that, were you sort of was it glam then then punk and and that kind of way or did you sort of have an older brother who introduced introduced you to prog rock instead yeah <laughs> no that was later actually um uh earlier my dad uh, i think my main understanding of music has come from my dad who used to sing to us at night time, you know, to send us to sleep. And they were quite dark folk songs uh, with really rich um, lyrics, you know, largely focusing on murders and uh, things like that. You know, the, the woman who lived in the wood and she killed a baby with a pen knife. And, you know, and these songs sort of taught me that uh, songs are a way of being, I suppose, you know, a way of knowing. Uh, and that's what, I've, you know, now that I'm 50, dare I say, uh, you know, I now think, oh, I don't have to report back to uh, the headmaster of cognition. I can know things through song. Uh, so, yeah, that was like really early. But anyway. Yes. Uh, moving, moving on, I suppose I had older sisters and uh and you kind of conflate things like i heard rock lobster on the back seat of my parents car and i taped it on a radio cassette i must have known to tape it because i think it was like number 40 yes and uh 
So I thought, oh, I'll take this. This is so otherworldly um, and just so complete sonically. Not that I would articulate it like that, but the layers within the sound of that song and, and the harmonics and the lyrics and everything. And I conflate that with my older sister, who was a very glamorous person that liked Blondie and people like that. And I was like, oh, there's two girls in the B-52s, all this. Oh, are you still there? Yes. Yeah, wigs, um, fiction machines, playing. And so playing with uh, creative imagination was something that I kind of understood from growing up because I'd seen my sisters having extravagant dressing up parties and my cousins encouraging us to make haunted rooms into which we would all have to take turns of walking in. So the B-52s kind of made sense within that uh, picture. Yes. Well, God, uh, On a more mundane level. Well, was, I, I, I like the jam as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was interesting because my I, I suppose I sort of slightly worshipped my older brother who was seven years older and he he had all these kind of prog rock albums and a few people I spoke to had yeah. a slightly similar experience of sort of you know, suddenly having to confess that they too had sort of gone through a Yes and Genesis and Barclay James Harvest yeah. phase. But obviously having sisters, I thought you were going to say it was all sort of, I don't know, Janis Joplin and Joni Mitchell and Carole King and Janice Ian, but no. Oh, no. Well, the other thing, my sister had Starman as a single, so, you know, what? what, this thing really exists on the record? What is this? And my sister has it? You know, it was uh, that sort of, Re- revelatory yes. to find that record you know so you get things after the event through your sister and one of my sisters bought me smash it no her my sister's boyfriend bought me smash it up by the damned for my birthday and uh, i said to him wow what uh, was this for the a side because at that time you know you might buy a record for the b side and he said well of course it's for the a side and uh, i that for a long time i I couldn't believe the production on that record. It was so magical. But a lot of that is to do with the timing of when you hear a record, yes, I suppose. This is true. I asked Rat Scabies about and he was very dismissive because I said, oh, the album version's nowhere near as magical as the single. And uh, but that's the thing, you know, I was projecting my sense of wonder and, you know, the artist might not always have that no. for that moment. Well, often, the, yeah, I always remember yeah. sort of a lot of the John Peel sessions were better than the sort of the studio albums that they put together. I remember yeah. that the, the Smiths album, Hatful of Hollow, was so much better than the first Smiths album, uh, which was, it sounded really flat and a bit sort yeah. of like, it didn't have the magic that the sort of the follow-up albums did. But it's all to do with the producer and engineer, yeah. I do believe. But during the 80s, we had uh, we had Thatch, which was very exciting. Then we had the, uh, you know, the Falklands and the Miners' Strike and then lots yeah. of unemployment at that stage. So a lot of people had got into bands because basically there was nothing else to do and being unemployed wasn't a big... It was almost a career move (laughs) in some places. And also, you know, there was a Job Seekers Alliance and the Enterprise Alliance. So did you... Were you slightly on that fringe of sort of thinking, what's going to happen to me in the 80s? Well, I'm quite an odd person, I suppose, in in that I've always uh, held the creative act quite highly uh and maybe some people would probably say that's privilege 
I don't think it is really that because my parents were never particularly well off and they're still, you know, on, on the cusp of being comfortable. They are comfortable, but I've always just uh, felt being creatively happy was what I want to do. So being in bands was part of that. And, yeah, perhaps I am denying slightly, you know, because the other members of Devon have remarked on how I always seem to believe that something would come from it. But um, I don't think that was driven by a sort of careerist attitude. It was just the love of the moments that we could create. Um, and that, that sort of happened because of being in David Devon, really. That ability to sort of see it within a context of a wider creative enterprise. Yes. Whereas before, yes. I think I'd seen it very much within the scope of being in a band. And uh, I kind of self-limited myself or I've got to write songs which are a bit awkward, jangly, because I like the razor cuts. You know, <laughs> it's like So it's, when I was in Devon, I could start opening up and writing in all sorts of ways. So, um, and, and did, about the time I, yeah, I was going to say, Sorry, did, and, and, and did songwriting come kind of easily to you? Because I know there's a few people who like Momus and Lawrence mm. Felt and, and sort of great wordsmiths, weren't they? And I suppose people like Morrissey as well. You know, you could you could see that they were sort of tortured poets in, in some sort of way. And all sort of people who didn't have sort of plan B and sort of what they were going to do. It's going to be art or. or, uh, or yeah, I mean, I've seen the Morrissey film. You know, I, I don't think I was ever really like that. I mean, I've always, like I said, because I grew up with songs as a sort of way of being. Um, I just thought I, my dad actually sent me to my room once to record all the songs that I was tinkering with. So I'm very grateful to him for doing that. Yes. Um, you know, he said, just put them on cassette. And I was like, wow. And I, and I, I remember that now, you know. So that process of capturing a song as it emerges and um, sometimes you construct it, sometimes it all comes at once, um, you know, and we can't help but love the idea of making a perfect pop single. Um, and that that's kind of adjacent to that creative emergence of a song and a melody and lyrics. Um, you know, they're not necessarily the same thing. No, but that uh, seven inch single is an amazing thing. Still remains that to me, you know. <laughs> it's like the artwork, the object, um, yes. the completeness. So, 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 but, as, uh, so yeah. as we were trucking through the eighties, I mean, obviously a lot of bands who sort of started. It was you know, indie pop for me was like between eighty three to eighty seven, which is the years of the Smiths. This is not a yeah. watertight theory, by the way, but this is what, yeah. this is the oh. best I can do. And you know, after eighty seven, things changed. You know, the Smiths kind of finished. Then yeah. Ecstasy came along, and that sort of wiped out a lot of those bands that we all sort of loved at the time because they realised that the scene had changed. And also, after their second album, yeah. they started to fall out with each 
each other, plus they had made no money. And and it was kind of all the things like the Happy Mondays and Soup Dragons and the um, Stone Roses. So that rave period started to yes. appear. If, if that didn't knock out bands, you know, suddenly the kind of American bands did sort of like the Butthole Surfers and um, Big Black and Sonic Youth. So, did, so during the 80s, were you just kind of being at art school, going from, you know, like your degree to post to your MA and stuff like that, without being in... Yeah, in that, that's... Uh pretty much it i mean that's really interesting because um you know before i went to art school i i was more active in bands and uh you know like i said we supported the go-betweens and the house martins because our manager put gigs on in brighton i don't think that the other bands were always that happy about us supporting but it, you know because who are these youngsters uh but then when i went to art school i think I was a sensible boy. I thought, right, and this is what I'm doing. I did form a band and we did some gigs and they were quite well received. But I sort of thought, oh, I'm not doing this now. I'm doing the art. But um, that was sort of driven by a feeling that I don't fit into music. Um, I remember about halfway through being at Chelsea, we were asked to go and be in a video for Simply Red. And um, it was a song called Do the Right Thing. And I just felt completely alienated from that idea of music. So it was like, well, why would I want to make music and be in a band? It's all like this. But um, something happened, you know, when I went to Bryant to do my MA, um, it, it all opened up again um, in an amazing way. You know, it became like a, a playground and everyone seemed connected and we were able to experiment and make things and uh, and not really worry about being inside a music industry. Yes. But so Trishpruk. Yeah. yeah, so were you yeah. sort of aware at that stage? Or had you slightly given, given music a bit of a miss at the same time that sort of grunge and the bands from Seattle as well as, you yeah. know, the, the noise bands? Because you, you sort of formed... Yeah your band in 1992, yeah. which was kind of the period where yeah. most, most kind of the honeymoon periods of music, especially in those days, seemed to sort of happen so quickly and things sort of moved on so fast. So yeah. were you kind of aware of that kind of scene thinking, let's just wait, wait until it's kind of slightly gone and then we'll just jump on the bandwagon for the next wave to come along? Well, um, yeah, I think... What happened is when I was in Brighton is is we no longer felt like we needed to be in a music industry. I had a good friend came to one of our first gigs. We used to play upstairs at a pub called The Rock and we got the gig in the Brighton Festival. They said, you have to be a theatrical performance. So we were a band with theatrical cardboard magic and uh, what some people might call Dardice, uh, situationist performance. And my friend came and he was at college in Manchester and he said, oh, I don't really do this sort of stuff anymore because I, you know, it was still quite guitar-y pop. Um, and, but within that format of the theatre and the performance art. So he he was now being exposed to, you know, have, like you say, Happy Mondays and... Uh, Stone Roses and people like, you know, the dance crossover, I suppose you might call it. <laughs> um, so I was aware of that. Did you and, go, did you go um, and see The Fall and Ma uh, Michael 
Michael the Michael Clark Ballet Company. Did you? Because because that kind of came along in the eighties, didn't it? Ah, yeah. I mean, I was aware of it. Not no, I didn't go. I was. Um, I think it took going to Brighton and me, being in a band with other fine artists to kind of open up my idea of things a bit more. Um, whereas when I was at Chelsea in London, I was a bit more cocooned and yeah, not so. Yes. I could probably remember some uh, avant-garde things we did, but it, you know, just from the feeling of it, I think it it, it opened up more in Brighton. Um, so, because at the time, because yeah, Bright, uh, because Brighton, from an outsider's point of view, because I you know come from Norwich, but you know we we sort of had Bristol Down as this kind of oh yeah, it was all getting a bit trip hoppy, wasn't it? But you'd also had Sarah Sarah yeah. Records, you had Manchester with Factory. Brighton was kind of famous for the Levellers, weren't it? They seemed to be sort of because they became huge in the nineties, didn't they? They were sort of stadium rock almost, and uh, so we all sort of assumed that that, that Brighton was kind of crusty. Crusty Central. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there was a a, a a particularly infamous apocryphal story. The Levellers posed it in front of a giant mural that I painted, um, which was like three stories high. And I sort of think back and how did I do that? That mural was also how I met Foz, our guitarist, who was in the monochrome set. He saw me in a photocopy shop photocopying my books and said, oh, you're the man that painted that mural. It was like a donkey headed figure on top of a skyscraper. And I said, somehow I knew he was Foz, the guitarist from the monochrome set. And from then on, he he became a bit of a guide for us. He used to come and just consult at our rehearsals and not actually play. But that was because of this mural that the levellers posed in front of for their publicity shots. I, I mention them because you mentioned grunge, or but Crust, I suppose crusty, more crusty. Grunge. It was the crusty, crusty scene. Yeah, it was a crusty. It was you and, know. Uh, the the Argos rang me up and said, uh, "Oh, did you know the levellers have done these pictures in front of your mural?" Aren't you annoyed? Don't you think you should have some money? And uh, I said, oh, it's a bit cheeky. Next day I went into college and everyone was like, ha ha, uh, saw you in the paper. It was like on page three, I think, this uh, local artist brands levelers cheeky. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of my intro to journalism and how the story can be made through the contact with the source rather than there being a story, because there wasn't a story, really. Um, yes, yeah. very strange. So look, yeah. then... then uh, was... Actually, Jeremy Cunningham was two years above me at school. Um, right. I used to hang out in the art room. Nice. So, yeah. And they're still going. <laughs> so then, when did you sort of say, this is it, this is the band, and this is the four of us, we're on a journey? Um, I don't think we ever did. Um and that, for me personally, you know, what gave me the freedom to find, I, I think they call it, you know, finding your voice, being expansive, making the music that you want to make, is somehow I tricked, I, I at least tricked myself, and I don't know whether we did as a whole band, into not feeling like we were in a band and uh, were just some kind of nomadic troupe of 
creative people doing stuff which involved music and uh, I think consequently we always used to get on really well with everyone we met on tour and didn't fall into that habitual band rivalry that you come across yes uh, but, yeah, well I, I guess you know, at the, I guess at the time it's always a bit tricky like being, being in a gang yeah being yeah. in a gang uh, but we weren't so much like that so I think um a lot of it was just instant trust you know we all kind of respected what each other did and there's the Iceman painting amazing signs to hold up in the gig and uh that that's when it felt like a sort of cohesive um, aesthetic group I suppose you know a nomadic yes ontology so at the time because there was because um, with the birth of the Britpop period there was kind of suddenly a, the music industry yeah. seemed to be awash with lots of money and champagne and cocaine yeah. and Britpop so it was kind of exploding and then you had a lot of bands who were quite interested in it and I have to confess I did love my life story and then there was people like Murray Lachlan Young the great yeah. poet who got a million pound from yeah. EMI did you did you well, sort yeah, of yeah. did you feel you know were you aware and did you feel sort of part of that slightly kind of kind of more arty kind of scene like the pulp scene rather than the sort of the blokey scene with Oasis and um and I suppose Blur really um I would say so yeah but I think that kind of crept up on us all and it seemed to coincide with us signing to a major record label who again you know want to distill things and um you know make things as simple as possible whereas um, prior to that, we had been on a rather lovely small record label was this hum- who were was playing this, at being a label. Was this Humbug Records? Humbug, yeah. yes. Because I can remember yeah. when you brought out that first, well, the only single on on that label. And that featured quite a lot of kind of interesting and quirky people, including, is it Martin Newell, who was... Um, one of those kind of great... Uh, well, he was on Humbug, yeah. Yes. yes. And there was kind yeah. of... I mean, yeah, they must have been about... I was just going to say, there seemed to About be a lot of quite they... interesting and quirky artists on it. Yeah, I mean, that's how I discovered uh, King of Luxembourg. Uh, yeah, Simon Fish-Turner. But uh, yeah, I was blown away by it. I think they were re-releasing the King of Luxembourg at that time. And so, yeah, that was an education for me, really. Yeah, So... Yes, can't remember where we were going here. Uh, <laughs> but you said yeah, it. So I you think, you uh, had your first single, which it, was on Humbug, Humbug Records, which you said was kind of nice because yeah. it was a record label pretending to be kind of, I don't know, more than they were, in your words. Well, but, they were kind. In, what what enfolding all the playfulness of being a label into being a label, in the way that we could play with being a band, being performance, being art, just turn everything into material for uh, it sounds pretentious you know creative expression which I suppose is you know they were doing that as a label especially Kevin the guy that ran it he wrote he wrote as a three-page letter to sign us you know which um, was written in this sort of elaborate um, Dickensian 
language, you know, <laughs> which was rather lovely. Yes. And then, you couldn't imagine yeah. Alan McGee doing that, could you? Uh, not really. No, no. It it was great. And then, you know, with the major label, it's just all big glass tables and, uh, you know, simplifying things. And, yeah, it's it's not as playful. Yes. Really. So how but did I think because because having done lots of interviews, most bands have a this five year narrative where they this is the 80s more than anything. Probably it might happen now. I don't know. But because um, I'm, I'm old and out of touch. But, you know, back then, you know, people would get together sometimes because of not having much else to do and being unemployed and, you know, creating a sound after about 12 months, or 18 and John Peel would play it. Then they would get a John Peel session, then an album. Things were going yeah. good. The second album, oh, a bit tricky. And then oh, if anybody ever I did it. And if, oh, and I was going to say, and if anybody ever did a America, that would often be the end of the band because that seemed to finish most bands off. But how did your sort of early years and that first five years go for you? Because by then you'd done a few singles and then you got an album. Uh, well, it seemed, you know, looking back, it went amazingly, really. Um, it it was slower than I think we would have liked because we we were quite creative and when you can set your own agenda, you can do as much as you like. But then, you know, Ginger probably came out quite a long time after the fact and um, might have added some people's cynicism about it as a song. Um, yeah, I remember one review, uh, Menswear actually reviewed Pimlico and said we were jumping on the Menswear bandwagon, which is quite funny really (laughs) yeah yeah menswear they weren't but were you did you sort of kind of tap into that kind of slightly david bowie anthony newley meets kind of performance art from the 60s because there was in the 60s there was a lot of happenings weren't there people like to get naked in paint did you sort of kind of you know because there was an artist around here called bruce lacey who was very famous for his performance art which often required which often involved him ended up being quite naked with feathers stuck to him so did you sort of enjoy that side of your artistic kind of movement well I think um for a long time I it I was actually quite reserved you know and uh uncomfortable of performance art so Devon was kind of my portal into that and uh later on I did an artist workshop with Grayson Perry and uh Philippa Perry and they and they were using kind of therapy processes during that and that opened up my understanding of my creative process and then i sort of became more uh happy i suppose within you know within a performance environment which kind of led on to me doing a sort of uh sabbatical as mr solo and uh, placing myself in quite extreme situations to see what would happen and yes. with performance. Was but, it a bit like? Um, was it a bit like I the David really... Bowie? Was it a bit like Bowie's kind of? There's David Jones, the real person, then there's David Bowie, uh-huh. the stage person. Did you sort of have a similar kind of attitude to sort of cope with that pressure of getting on stage and performing? Um, well, I think uh, I, David Bowie is remarkably astute or was, sorry, uh, you know, a remarkably astute artist who was able to synthesize and assimilate very um, acutely. You know, he he could do that. Whereas I, I think, 
I grew up with hearing loss. So my whole performance is about not acceding to the world of linguistic concepts and just playing and trying things out. It's not as calculated. And uh, I recently read that's sort of what David Byrne does. You know, he, he, he's not calculated about performance and character and there isn't so much separation. Uh, it's just sort of a, a merger of your way of being. And that, that's how I would explain it. I suppose if I was more calculated, um, it might have been more yeah, to we've gone for the jugular, I suppose. Yes. But uh, I always remember with uh, we did a video for lie detector, which was like the third single. And I decided to do it without my wig. Um, you know, my hallmark wig. So we were on a campaign for that song. And I, and it's just because you want to keep things emergent and try things out, whereas it would have made much more sense to keep the wig, because I remember on BBC going, oh, the vessel's got a strange haircut. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we weren't particularly calculated about performance. Yes, this is true. I did live in Shepherd's Bush for a while, uh, went just about in 93, and uh, I borrowed the world of David Bowie from the library, and that was about all I listened to for a year, and that probably fed into Pimlico and that, that whole feel. In fact, you know, I'd conflate that with my discovery of Anthony Newley, and oh this is where my voice is um my voice isn't like that person in the indie band it, it's more like Anthony Newley David Bowie so once you've got your voice you can start writing songs using that voice uh so that first album you know we'd love you to Tuesday and there is a happy land all those Bowie songs uh well what helped me Find my voice. Yes. Yeah. So that. But I mean, you know. But uh, so. So looking back over twenty years, yeah, when that, you did that world, that, that that first album, which was work, um, love life, and uh, miscellaneous, what are your memories of it now? Yes. Uh, very good. I mean, we did that with Warren Livesey, who uh, who produced uh, Fetus and the the and Ju and Julian Cope. Uh, who I loved as well. You know, he's a great songwriter, isn't he, Julian Cope? Yes. Uh, he's um, vocal and such a great thinker as well, you know. But um, Warren was um, a real perfectionist and, um, yeah, great great to work with. Uh, we, we called him Lavish Livesey because of his production skills. Uh, some people remark on that album and say they, they it sounds like something from the 70s that they'd missed, you know, because Warren had that sense of creating a sound, which I don't think I've come across since. But um, yes, yeah. it's always it's so, always about the yeah. producer, because I know a lot of people often get in somebody to engineer and produce their album because it's often hard to work out how you get the sound that you want. And often sometimes 
it doesn't yeah. sound quite what you were looking for. And I just wondered by then, obviously we'd had that moment where New Labour were just getting into power a long time ago, and um, yeah. <laughs> which was quite strange. Yes. Yeah, so you. So, but but you had all those shine. Remember those shine compilations that came out with all those Britpop bands on that. Um, oh, you cut out a bit then. Oh yes, I was going to. I was just saying there was um, apart from there was the Britpop, you know, scene, but there was all these kind of shine yeah. compilations that would seem to come out every month with another sort of twenty tracks uh-huh. by various bands. So were you aware of that yeah. scene and thinking, "Geezy queasy, we must get on it because frankly, it's not going to last forever." And there was people, obviously, like you had, you know, my life story, who I've mentioned, and Pulp, who were the obvious yeah. people. But were you feeling a little bit like the party was happening and 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 you were sort of struggling to get that first album out i i think there was a little bit of that feeling but um there was a very supportive sort of morphing scene in london at the time you know it was like romo then it was Britpop, and um, Britpop became much more simplified you know originally it meant lots of different things didn't it because you had uh you know even Goldie was Britpop, I think, at one point. You know. Yes, that did. Uh, and Smashing. Did you ever go to Smashing? No. Matthew Glamour. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that they were very much using the uh, performance art angle, you know, Smashing. Minty was the name of Matthew's band. I think they're still... I saw Minty. Still going. But... They, they were supporting My Life Story at some London yeah. gig. And, yeah, yeah. Um, they were very arty, weren't they? And I suppose you also had that, yeah. oh, God, the one with the weird vocal that got to number one and disappeared, you know, Space Boy. Oh, God, was it Babylon Zoo? Uh, Babylon Zoo. Yes. Was that? I don't, yes, that's yes. right. Uh, master. <laughs> yes, I can't remember much else apart from that one scene yeah. that was all there. So yeah, then, well, I, I was going to say, and then as, yeah. as we got towards the end of the decade and the millennium, were you... As a band and an artist, were you sort of struggling to keep it going or was it sort of, were you still on a roll at that stage? I think we're definitely on a roll. Uh, Some people like uh, the second album, Shiny on the Inside, which is a kind of end of the millennium album. You know, it's got all those hallmarks, the classic focus on the eclipse. Uh, That was in sort of June 1999, I think. And that uh, pseudo spiritualist sci-fi feeling to the whole thing. Um, we made a video for Space Daddy, uh, which involved an effigy being built out of spam of an Easter Island head under in the, underneath a, a sort of concrete submarine in Stockwell. Nice. So, yeah, no, it was great. It was great fun to do. And, um, yeah, I mean, that album nearly became a major label thing. But we uh, I think that was like the really early days of the Internet. And we did it through mail order and felt it felt very exciting. You know, it's like doing it back on our own terms and. And, uh, yeah, playing with it again, even though we'd kind of stripped it back and did that uh, residency at the Water Rats uh, three nights of the whole album, which was actually really nerve wracking because the album was quite ambitious in terms of music. So we had to be able to play it. And uh, that was, I'm not saying the music we play now isn't hard, but 
but yeah, that felt very daunting trying to play that album live and uh yeah i've made good friends friends through that album you know yes. there's a lot of people came to us through that rather than work love life miscellaneous yes because it was obviously a very glantastic album and it had lots of references to the time so was that a period that you were also sort of being yeah. slightly hedonistic I, well, I think circumstances probably made us slightly more introspective. And uh, yeah, I think there was just this curiosity of, you know, the, the sci-fi genre. And in a similar way to, you know, the, how we'd use magic and Victorian conjuring as a sort of what I'd call a fictioning machine, we then kind of use sci-fi as a way of exploring other modes of being other other possibilities and and having fun with it you know yeah I, I like i like the song shiny on the inside um it's kind of, yeah there's that slightly creepy dystopian feel which was good to explore um, <laughs> um and we record yeah that, so that was a studio uh, that our management had called beethoven so i think those studios give you a, a feel of being on a spaceship, kind of locked in, um, and uh, and you know making your making your music within that realm. Yes, well, I think a lot of people. So they, they, I think uh, the hedonism was probably earlier than that. Yeah, uh, that's the hedonism moments of being thrown out of your own single launch. We did Cookie, which is probably about ninety six. That was our first Arista single for which we made the film Light on the Surface um, with uh, Mikey and Nick, who were bubblegum fuck. And uh, that was kind of like a strange Roxy Music style road movie with yes. no plot based on Plato's Cave. Um, so, um, so the launch for that, that was so exciting at that time you know because everything seemed to be another launch party and going out and um i was thrown out of the cookie launch because uh betty boo was there and i thought i'd impress her by um taking apart the mannequin on the dance floor and using it as part of my dancing and the bouncers didn't agree uh that it was such a creative thing so they threw me out and but, God, uh, that must have yeah, felt so that's sad. the hedonist. Yes, that was your hedonist. Uh -huh. hed hed that was your hedonistic moment. Yeah. Yes, because sort of seeing those kind of being one of those people who love watching my BBC Four on a Friday night yeah. kind of rock documentaries. That kind of period of Britpop sounded both fun, but also people got a bit messy, didn't they? You know, it, it sounded like there was a lot of money sloshing around. And at that stage, there was a lot of PR companies that had sort of sprung up as well, who were also part of that kind of London scene. So from an out, outsider's point of view, it did sound like London was awash with champagne and cocaine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just love... Uh, yeah, well, that's me. I kind of uh, cocoon myself from that, I think, yeah. I don't know how. Maybe it's my hearing loss, but I don't know how that can affect my my exposure to uh, alcohol and cocaine. Uh, but uh, somehow it did. Uh, yes. Yeah. 
And did you but, and did um, the and did the band at that sort of the end of the decade were, was it sort of coming to a slow end or um, or fast? I don't think so. Yeah, what you mean, ours or the music scene? I think no, there was you. this sense uh, with with the industry. Uh, I mean, luckily we had kind of inured ourselves to that because we'd always been a, a collective nomadic group of people being created together. Um, so I don't think we felt like slowing down. I, if anything, you know, I, I think that album was more of a creative explosion than the first one because the first one is like uh, a number of years, isn't it? Yes. In one record. So the second one is then much more intense. And, uh, and and all the stuff you've learned from doing the previous one comes into that record. So that um, was our experience of the end of uh, the millennium. Yes. And I think we always felt a little bit outside of scenes, but perhaps every band does. You know, you don't think, oh, I'm, that's definitely my scene. I think there are probably some people who are quite calculated and, right, I'm going to be in that uh, Romo synth scene or, but, um, you know, we, I think we were much more what some cognitive people would call random. But for me, being random is just aesthetic feeling. You know, I don't do things through concept. The concepts come out of them. It, it's more of a felt experience. Yes. Which must be quite an organic process. Yeah, yeah. Is it quite a <laughs> yeah. so so when you start a project, is it the case you don't have an overall sort of like this is gonna be we're gonna do chapters one, two, three, and this is gonna be the conclusion? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's um a sense that you can understand things wordlessly and sort of have a sense of how they're going to pan out in your imagination and concepts can come in and help guide you along the way and um you know people one review in the mid 90s said that coming a not particularly favorable review you know said that our gigs were a bit like um you know a game that you don't know the rules to right you know because that person's thinking conceptually oh you must have thought this up yes but you know I'm like, oh, no, I'm st- no, I'm still here. I think, no. I think we the... felt it up. Yeah, which it isn't being dumb. It's just feeling and trusting that that is quite uh, can be an intelligent mode. Um, the 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 non linguistic. Yeah. So when so. so after shiny on the inside had come out, did was there a moment where the yeah. band? finished did you have a moment where you think this is it this is yeah the ziggy stardust moment yeah yeah no i i think um we kind of like an organism we went into a slightly slower metabolism and uh we we never ever felt like we'd stopped uh foz came back because foz wasn't on the second album uh foz had a sabbatical and John Klein, who became the Pope, was the guitarist on our second album. Um, and, and then for the third album, Foz returned. That's power words for better living. Yes. Um, so I think there's a kind of 
strange glamour and loyalty within within the band. And I think that's probably helped by a non-conceptual mode because it's much easier to distance yourself from people through concepts and think, oh, we said that and this and that. And it's harder to let go of concepts, whereas with feeling, it's just much more of a, um, a loyal connection. Yes. And trust, you know, I mean, I might not always agree with everyone's aesthetic decisions, but, um, you know, the, the production of the music and the band and the sound and the feel that's more important than what I at that moment might conceptually think. So that's quite a long way around saying, you know, I, ne I never felt like we split up. Um, I mean, that might be something to explore, <laughs> but, you know. Did the band become uh, more... Hey, guys, shall we split up? <laughs> you know? Well, it was but, interesting because uh, I think it was in the 90s. I was talking to one of the members of James at the height of their kind of moment, and they were sitting around the pool, I think it was in Spain, and um, I can't remember, he was the guitarist, and he said, look, shall we split up because we all really hate each other? And they went, yeah, yep, let's do it because... We really do all hate each other. So so it does kind of happen occasionally yeah. like that. And they sort of gave each other about 10 years and probably realised that in that 10 years, none of yeah. them had made any money and needed to get back together and probably have yeah. some band therapy as well. So did you, I mean, that was slightly, yeah. it sounded a bit more extreme than most bands um, who probably just don't show up yeah. at the next rehearsal or the next meeting and everyone realises that um, kind yeah. of, I suppose, apathy has kind of kicked in. And also the sort of, I suppose, luck, yeah. lack of kind of commercial success is another thing that kind of kill, kills a lot of people and they think, I'd better get another job. Yeah. So did you manage, with your power words for better living, power words for better, did, it, did that sort of feel like a, a sort of a, a nice kind of album to bring out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was the balloon animal concept album uh, at that time. Uh, I think I just my kids were toddlers. So, I, you know, I, I adopted the role of uh, balloon animal molding and I, I learned the art of it. And for some reason, I suppose I fetishized the balloon animal um which i i no longer think fetishizing things is a useful thing i suppose you know it's kind of overly fixated <laughs> but at that album it seemed to me that oh balloon animals they are it there is a kind of sense of imminence in balloon animals yes. you know like imminence as in meaning and my uncle who is an actor called tom georgeson i wrote him a script uh, for how to make a balloon animal and when we launched the album at uh, the lovely venue in uh, Camden, can't remember what it's called, uh, so we had these instructions read out and every member of the audience made their balloon animal following the instructions. Excellent. Uh, I think it again you know it's that sense of wonder isn't it and transformation um, and capacities through materials. You know, you've got this thing that was just like a rubber, stretchy piece of elastic, which is now uh, a wonderful animal in your hands, yeah, which seems to have a mind. 
<laughs> yes. Well, it, it's sort of also that that particular cover. They do look a bit like smaller versions and more ephemeral than the Jeff Koons. Oh, cutter. I was just going to say with with um, I know that yeah. Jeff Koons had sort of done quite a lot of those kind of image um, characters, but made with with sort of I suppose I don't know solid material and big and shiny and worth billions. Yeah. Whereas these are much more ephemeral, but they're slightly similar design. They're just very short, smaller versions, aren't they? The Jeff. Jeff Koons' work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he's a funny artist, really. I mean, he plays with the aesthetic lure, doesn't he? You know, those sort of humongous giant balloon animals that he's made. Yeah, you, how can you not be drawn to that? But he's kind of distilled it, it the aesthetic, to just pure attraction to the aesthetic lure. Yes. There doesn't seem to be any joy of capacities. I mean, he's a clever man. And, um, yeah. And they're very highly but, polished. Um, so then, after that yes. release, and we were trucking through another decade, did you did the band then sort of take a break or did it just kind of, you know, sort of keep puttering around it, in the background? I think, it. yeah, I mean, we were constantly gig because we you know if people ask us to do a gig we will do them <laughs> so, and uh yeah i think i can't uh, try and remember how this happened it, it's about myspace isn't it 2008 oh yes uh, maybe two, six seven and i uh i had some songs that i wanted to do and i eventually came up with mr solo and that was about the time that I did this artist workshop with Grace and Perry. And so it was, oh, how, what will happen if I just let myself fall into this space and just let go of everything and see what happens? And that's what Mr. Solo was. And I was kind of trying to learn from everything I'd learned in Devon. Um, because you travel around in a, a tour bus and it's very easy to forget about experiencing the actuality of the tour and think about, oh, I've got to make the hit record. Uh, whereas Mr. Solo was trying to get back to immersing myself in that sense of emerging imminence from just the situation itself. Yes. And with, uh, and, with... That, and, and that, that, that was, yeah, my space in insanity because i made a myspace site for mr solo uh and i don't know if you know about this but and then mr sulu came and a friend messaged me and said i don't know if you've seen this but it's sort of beyond parody it's actually quite hateful and mr sulu was like a sort of very hateful parody of mr solo uh with lots of self-loathing in the lyrics but sort of quite well done. And um, it was very extreme to experience the internet on that level. Um, and, and it's kind of taking that idea of playing with stuff and making it all part of your creative palette, but then turning it into something weaponized, which is quite strange. My yeah. God. Did and... Uh, 
Did you have to get off? The yeah. dark, did, were you having to sort of try and sort of get yourself out of the, not the dark web, but was it all just too much? Um, it never, it was challenging. It was very challenging, but it never became too much, um, you know, because I was able to go to myself, hey, th this is quite a good thing, really, isn't it? That someone has bothered to do this with your music and your identity. I mean, some of my publicity shots at that time were in my garden with my kids uh, toy car in the background just because of happenstance and uh, serendipity and contingency. But Mr. Sulu had then done the same thing in his photos. So it was like, oh, my domestic realm is somewhere loving and creative and you're using it in this spiteful way. So uh, that was challenging. Yes, it reminds uh, me of the yeah, Alan Parks. I was, I was going to say, it reminds me of the Alan Partridge sketch where he met this kind of ultimate fan when he walked into the living room. It was just full of pictures and that effigy of Alan Partridge, which completely freaked him <laughs> out. So did you ever know who this person was? Uh, no, no, I didn't. Um, so if you're out there, yeah. <laughs> yes. You could, uh, you're forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Yeah. Coming up to the current time and current day, you are still yeah. sort of performing and releasing albums, which is quite amazing for that sort of um, the kind of artistic journey. Because, yeah. but you do run a parallel artistic life, don't you? Which, which is kind of about exhibiting and art. Yeah, well, it's kind of entangled. It's not parallel. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, all these threads weave together and become part of one whole tapestry um that they're not it's not really parallel um but with with the new album that a, a little bit like mr solo was just like oh what happens when it's just me i thought oh let's fall into the band and let's see what happens if we are just completely a band and because i and the others must have felt it, but you know, I feel a real strong connection to what we do musically. And um, it's not just, oh, we'll get a bass player in, we'll get a drummer in. You know, there's something happens with the four of us that is was definitely uh, due to be explored again. Yes. Um, so, so I think so that's when, what this So when did you is. reform and to, to bring out, cut out and keep me? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as as I said, you know, we never separated. I think what happened is I probably made a little bit more of an effort to make us uh, get together to record and write, but it it wasn't anything demonstrative. You know, it it was more just ah, let's try this and. Um, and that's that's how it happened, you know, because I, I absolutely love making music with other people and seeing what happens when you're in spaces with instruments and the ability to record. And there will be challenging moments uh, whenever you do things, but uh, there will be moments of utter joy, you know, because of what you've made. It's like, wow. Yeah. 
So yeah, absolutely. And do you, um, and do yeah. you find it sort of quite I, I interesting mean, and slightly boggling that there are just so many people that were out there doing it back then who are still doing it? Because my life story would just I know I mentioned those endlessly, yeah. but that you know Jake is still doing yeah. it, and you know Murray yeah. Murray Lapland Young is still performing, though he's doing a slightly different yeah. show now. But he also does his poetry stuff, but he does theatre. Yeah. So everybody, and then you got all those kind of theme weekends, eighties or nineties weekends. So. The, the the need the need yeah. or the joy of performing and creating is still very much out there. So do you when you bump into other artists yeah, from that I, decade, do you sort of have a nice chin wag and say, God, can you believe it? We're still rocking. Well, I did come across Jake Schillingford. Well, uh, not getting back to the hedonism. Sorry. No, uh, on Facebook, he I mentioned that I was trying to learn how to play cribbage again, and. Uh, because I used to play with my dad and my granddad and Jake me- messaged me saying oh yeah I've, I've been trying to learn how to play cribbage so I think cribbage is in the air cribbage yeah. could be the new rock and roll and um, I don't know are you aware of cribbage boards and well vaguely uh, I must admit a few, a few years ago I started yeah. I bought some dominoes and started enjoying that and cribbage is something that I can remember in our uh, our toy cupboard at home with with little matchsticks that you'd stick yeah. into different holes but I don't remember yeah. what the yeah. actual way of playing it was actually which is a bit embarrassing yeah I think I think because it's quite a ritualistic game and there is quite a lot of vocalization in the game and phrases uh, the only one I currently remember is and one for his knob. You got a point for the for the jack, and you would say and one for his knob. Oh. Um, so that is remember. But um, that was definitely that was definitely. It's playing nice in, to think of these rock and rollers playing cribbage. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So perhaps, yeah, my life story and David Devon could get back together for a cribbage. Off. <laughs> yes, I think I think that could be something that Channel Four should definitely finance. So, what have you got planned yeah. then for this decade, this year, and this decade? Um, who knows? Yeah, uh, gosh, but more more recording, I think, would be nice. Yeah, new songs, more songs, um, and uh, I do have a pipe dream about a Devon B sides album because. I, I do love so many of our B-sides and it would just be nice on a personal level to have them all in one place. Yes. On a platter. It would be um, good. I did, so I did I notice guess what that I'm saying there is it's not driven by nostalgia. <laughs> it was, oh, sorry, I missed that last bit. What was it? You said it was not driven by... Yeah, it, it's not driven by nostalgia. It's just a sort of sense of wanting to keep everything together and go, ah, oh, that's that and that, that's that. And oh, that was a good song. <laughs> well, I know we get so, we everyone gets to that age of wanting to archive, file, you know, keep it all nice and neat, just in case. Did you ever have you ever been tempted with a theatrical musical of your music and and your brain? Uh, a theatrical, a kind of a musical, something you know to be performed on stage you know a little bit like yeah. i don't know a few years ago i went down to see the meatloaf had a, a production called bat out of uh, hell which was kind yeah. of the music of meatloaf yeah, yeah. Done, done in a theatrical way and i just kind of thinking yeah. of your music and theatrical qualities and um 
art and illustration. We... I just wondered if you were ever tempted to think, like, let's make our Ziggy Stardust or Quadrophenia. Yeah. Let's just, or Tommy. I just wondered if that yeah. was something that you would ever be oh, like. Who knows? I think um, it would take quite a lot of cohesive thinking. And, uh, you know, because I'm driven by creative emergence, it's, it, you know, if something comes along, then that might happen. But um, I suppose in a way we were that at the beginning. We were like a musical about a dead magician who summons his wife and channels himself through these young musicians because magic isn't so popular anymore. So he's going to use music. And that was what our early concerts were. Um, and in, in, a, in a way, they were a musical. But I, yeah, the word I've been struggling to remember is reductionist. So that whole sort of industry of reviving artists through musicals is extremely reductionist and it's based on equivalence. And it's not really something that makes you feel joyful and excited about creating it. But I don't want to sort of take away from the people that are involved in that because they they must enjoy it but um you know if someone said oh, i i wouldn't i want to make a musical from the devont songs i probably wouldn't stand in their way <laughs> <laughs> this is true and um, do you and with and with your audience are you Fact. yes are you still picking up new members or have you just got some very loyal people who are sticking with you no matter what Definitely. Uh, well, I, you know, I don't think people are lying and they do, they do say, you know, I've just found your music and people, yeah, there's new people at the gigs and all our gigs seem to have a slightly rotating audience. So they're never always the same following at the gigs and we seem to get a good, uh, a, a good number of punters. Uh, but so, yeah, it's always fresh. It's emerging. And uh, not that it's not without its challenges, but... Um, <laughs> it's always yeah. full of challenges. So, but, look, just last yeah. question. What would you say to your kind of an 18-year-old self that was starting out on the creative, you know, the creative world, or even worse, to call it the creative yeah. industries? I just wondered if there was something that you think, yeah. yes, that's something that I kind of wished I'd thought of or somebody had told me when I began. Yeah, yes. Um, well, I'd say meet the people that are in David Devont, because for me, they were the sort of chemical catalysts that opened it all up, you know, so that I guess be open to meeting um, connected minds and creative organisms, be, be open to that moment. But I think the thing I always think about with, you know, when you meet the uh the major record labels it's very seductive and easy to forget that sense of creative joy that made you do what you were doing and to have faith in that and to trust that and to not try and fit it within their language and to compromise it because i do think that there was a certain amount of that that happened with us you know trying to negotiate with the major label in terms of what you're what you're doing, um, but so to just have much more confidence in the fact that this creative openness is a good thing, and to to not let it feel occluded or crushed. Not that we ever felt anything that dramatic, 
but you know when you think of people like Liam their whole shtick is about this is what I am and you can all go to hell in a hay cart uh, in Liam's words so you know I think it equally it's very important to be protective of you know creative emergence and that and just have faith in that so that's my advice to my 18 year old self yes it's um yeah go with it just do and it. enjoy it wow yeah that's good advice though. Uh, you know yeah. that do not feel you have to accede to linguistic concepts you know because that's all the record company table deals with or they tell themselves they deal in when really they too are drawn to the aesthetic lure but they just post rationalize it much more quickly I guess it's desperation. It's kind of a combination of desperation yeah, yeah. And, and needing to make a buck, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, or I don't know. We all want to make a buck, but there's ways of doing it, aren't there, I suppose? Yes. And, and, and do yeah. you sort of feel just last... I mean, a lot of people who've been in music for a long time think, my God, thank God I didn't start being in the band now because I have no idea how it works. And I just wondered if you sort of have managed to sort of navigate it so that you're sort of in some sort of control of what you're doing and not sort of feeling just like dragged around and thinking, God, we've, we've, you know, I suppose it's just that thing that the industry has changed so much. And I suppose people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and I was, I, I I was going to say, and, it, and it's probably, you know, at the time we all moaned as we do because we we're English, British, but, you know, like the 80s now look yeah. quite good. Whereas, and I think a lot of people who are in bands thinking then and are still playing music now, I think, thank God I, I, I had that experience because I have no idea how young people would make music and even make any money. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do feel lucky that I had that experience that exposed me to the joy of being in recording studios, because I think that's probably a harder culture to access now. You know, that sense of going into the submarine and making a record and being unoccluded, you know, and unencumbered. And you've just got that space that is beyond time to make records. Whereas now, because, you know, everything much easier you know that's a good thing it's easier to make a digital record that sounds good but you don't get that sense of outside of uh, normal time and space yes so I feel lucky that I had that you know and that's that now feeds into what I do even if it's on my laptop at home you know I still feel like I'm going into that realm absolutely and do you I mean being based in Brighton I do know have noticed that a lot of people sort of ended up in Brighton. Do you sort of bump into quite a few people on the streets and think, oh, yes, you used to be in the Sidleys or you were in, I don't know, the James Dean driving experience? Because I think quite a few people sort of ended up down in the Brighton world. And the levellers, I just wondered if that still happens. I think, well, Foz is our main Brighton correspondent, Foz question mark, and he does bump into the most extraordinary people in Brighton. Um, so he's better placed than I am to answer that. Um, yes. Yes. But going back, I, I did my enterprise allowance in Brighton. That was one of your earlier questions. And uh, that was right at the beginning of David Devon and his spirit wife. I did the enterprise allowance 
at the same time as I think his name's Duffy, but he was the keyboard player in Primal Scream. Oh, yeah. So we were both on the same Enterprise Allowance meetings and, um, and our paths kind of diverged from that point. <laughs> so, I know. Yeah. It was it was a good it, bizarrely it was quite a good thing in the end, you know. Looking back on yeah. it, it gave people that. But anyway, look, this has been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this interview. Thank you, David. Yeah, I'm much so, appreciated. Uh, so what I'll do is when I put it out, I'll you'll probably see it some sort of lurking on the on the internet, and I'll tell you you know when it does go out so yeah. that. Um, yeah, and I'll, yeah. I always podcast it so that you get a general. Oh yes, that's interesting. And you can always because because your fans out there would love to listen to it quality chat yeah two people chatting about life yeah i mean it's good because get them keep them chatting about the album <laughs> yeah. yes this is true uh so, oh yeah we're on we're on the radio caroline playlist so that's good um so that's like the coat is yours sewn up um <laughs> which is good yeah yes absolutely yeah. Radio, i didn't realize it was still going yeah absolutely <laughs> so but um, is it the original ship or is it a different? Is it a boat? Uh, no, I think it's on land now. Oh, yeah. is it on land? It's on land. Yes. No, oh, how sweet. Yes. Yeah. Well, look, I'll send definitely. Yes, but I'll leave. I'll send you a link, and then you can repost it and think. Way, that sounds great. But look, yeah. well, no, thank. It's always, it's always... Yeah. No, it's great chatting, and um, yeah. So what? Is it about a week turnaround? Yeah, so I'll try and do it in the next couple of weeks, but uh, that's all good. And have you ever played in Norwich? I sort of was trying to think. Have you ever sort of sort of entered the fine city? I think city? we did a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I get around to mentioning is um, Prog Rock. Older brother is um, two years into Devon. I met, uh, well, I made friends with uh, Patrick Welsh, who's sadly no longer with us. But we shared a studio and he got me into Van de Graaff Generator magazine and I re-explored Roxy. So it, he kind of gave me that prog rock angle on things. And the whole idea that Ziggy was really coming out of Peter Hamill's idea of the sort of slightly dysfunctional pop star. And so that, you know, um, Van de Graaff Generator, that influence was more to the fore on our second album if you right. think about uh yeah God. take a deep breath i think that was my van de graaff moment van de graaff yeah i was kind of trying to channel that i think van de graaff generator i know it was actually yeah. i have to confess it was one of those bands that slightly passed me by but i'll have to now go and sort of google and find out more it, it would have passed me had I not had that period, yeah. Yes, unlike the like, solo, wow. unlike yeah. the solo work of Rick Wakeman that um, I do sort of, especially his seventies work, I I know far yeah. too far too well, which is not a healthy thing really. But uh -huh. <laughs> there you go, the Six Wives of Henry VIII, the Journey to the Centre of the Earth. I know those <laughs> albums, know those albums too well. But there you go. Anyway, look, this has been fantastic. So thank you ever so much. And I'll send you a link and then you'll have it. And that yeah. will be there forever. That'll be great. But yes, yeah. thanks well, a lot. We should come to Norwich. You um, definitely should. I know. It's is a, there a good venue there? 
Well, there are quite a few yeah. actually. There's a um, there's the art centre, and there's various other sort of yeah. other venues that people have got and and have performed. But yeah. I, I'm sort of boggled that you haven't. I know that. Yes, it's kind of. A, I don't know what the live music scene is is like as much as I used to. I suppose it it was much more of a yeah. You know, I don't know the gateway, the gatekeepers of our our world were things like John Peel and the NME, and you know they, every yeah. every little town seemed to have a uh, not every town but every city as well as every town had a sort of indie night, didn't they? Back in the eighties and yeah. in the nineties, so that you know often yeah. on a, I think it was a Tuesday or Monday night in Norwich there was the Wild Club, and they used to have about three bands on, so people you know performed a lot. You know yeah. that that was kind of the the the, yeah. the well trodden path because every place like from you know Brighton to Bristol to Leeds, Glasgow, Manchester, all seem to have these kind of clubs. We had two, yeah. two to three hundred people that would just turn up on a Monday night, like me, who were lacking in vitamin D, and um, yes, just wanted yeah. to see indie bands, just in case they were going to be the next big thing. So yeah. I don't know what it's like for you artists out there now. Yeah, well, I think it sadly it isn't like that. I've got a good friend Matt who is in the low fidelity all stars and people go to him, Oh, what should a, what should a band do? And he goes, I don't know, <laughs> you know, cause now it's not like it was then where there was a circuit and you could gig and yes. feel like you had an outlet. I know. Um, that's, so that is but maybe it's time to revive that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somehow. This, I'm sure it will yeah. come back again, but look, this is great. I must go and have tea, but this has been good. Yes. Anyway, and um, you're a Liverpool fan, so you must be so happy now. I'm quite happy, and it feels quite familiar from when I was growing up to, you know, that sort of feeling of, oh, this is nice. You know, it seemed to, as soon as I actually grew up, that was when they stopped winning. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I know. It was the, it was the, yes. Yeah. I remember the, I suppose it was the Keegan and Toshak years that I remember very well, well-ish, and um, that kind of yeah. period. Yeah. So, uh, yes, during the 90s, oh. it, it was all Man United, oh, really, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, but, no, it was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, when but, Fer, uh, it was when Fergie came that, you know, Liverpool, you know, went very backwards. But now you've got a great manager. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. Well, Klopp understands the city, I think, doesn't he? It's like, it's the Shankly thing. It, the club is for the people. And, yeah. Yes, it's good. It's good. Anyway, look, I'm going to go good. and groove All right, on. David. Take care. and um, keep, keep in touch. I will keep in touch. Anyway, have a lovely evening. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, David. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye.